This editorially independent podcast is supported by Visit Flanders. Hello. Hi, could I speak to Mr. Owen Walsh, please? <laughs> Very good. Hi, Brendan here. Speaking. Yes, no, I guess from the accent. Um, the Belgian coast. Uh, do you yeah. like the Belgian coast? Um, do I like the Belgian coast? Have we not talked about this before? Um, the Belgian coast mm, leaves me cold. Let's put it like that. Well, um, I I've done something a bit silly. I booked you into a few hotels to go up and visit the Belgian coast, okay. and uh, you're staying in the Parisian and Ostende and. Um, there's another one in Dahan I've booked you into, right. and um, it's sumptuous of you. I've I've also booked your train. It leaves okay. it leaves Brussels in the morning, tomorrow. and uh, tomorrow, yeah. Okay. Um, so um, if you could just maybe go up there and take your notebook and your raincoat, right, and uh, maybe a microphone, okay. and um, drink and eat. Mm. The Belgian coast. The Belgian coast, yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's one other thing. You're only allowed to get around on the coast tram. Okay. Well, I mean, you know me. I love public transport. Um, But yeah, a whole day on the tram. We'll see how it goes. Well, look, see what you can do. And um, after you come back, just give me a call, okay? All right. Perfect. Talk again. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Belgium has purchased on a roughly 65-kilometre stretch of North Sea coast. Bordered by Bray Dunes and the French Opel Coast to the south, and Katzant and Zeeuws Vlaanderen in the Netherlands to the north, Belgium's coast is fully in the province of West Flanders. Along the coast are 15 beach resorts or towns, from major developments like Ostend to smaller towns like De Haan and Coxede. With a cumulative six Michelin stars in restaurants in the region, the coast has a density of just over one Michelin-starred restaurant for every 10 kilometres. There are breweries too, at least three, depending on your definition and geographical scope. That's uh, Brouwerij St. Idisbald, Jus de Mer, and Stadsbrouwerij Ostende to Kutskip and many cafes, restaurants and bistros with something to offer your non-Michelin guide reader. These businesses and the towns they occupy are all strung out alongside or straddling the metal tracks of Tram Zero, the Kustram, Belgium's coastal tramline. 67 kilometres long and comprising 68 stops, the tram has been trundling leisurely between these pleasure centres for 137 years. It's the longest single tram line in the world.
So, Owen Walsh, beer writer and fellow Irishman in Belgium, took the Custram the length of the coast to explore its food and drink culture. But it's not all plain sailing. Remember, the Belgian coast leaves Owen Walsh cold. My name is Brendan Kearney, and you're listening to the Belgian Smack Podcast. been living in Belgium for how long now? 14 years this July. 14 years. And before this trip, you had been to the coast, I presume. I had um, a little bit of uh, personal family trivia. My wife loves the Belgian coast. Um, And for the longest time, I didn't really understand it. Uh, Coming from not quite as um, coastal an area of Ireland as you come from, but a place where the beach was only 20 minutes away and it was a proper beach with cliffs on either side and sand and a shack and that was it. Um, so I have been to the coast. I was trying to rack my brains while I was doing the article to see when I had actually been to the coast for the first time and I couldn't I couldn't actually remember um, whether it was the first time or not. But we went when, when my kids, when, when my first child was very small, maybe a year or two old, uh, we went to an apartment on the seaside and I remember my abiding memory of that trip is the wind the wind and the grey skies and the inhospitable uh, promenade so is is the your kind of indifference towards the coast or was your indifference towards the coast more based around your what you perceive the coast should be from from Ireland I think I think I would be lying to myself if that wasn't the case yeah what, um, did, what did your wife love about it? At the, you know, that you the peace and understand? quiet, the peace and quiet, the peacefulness. So coming from Brussels, which can be, as anyone who's been here, can be quite a chaotic place to live at the best of times. Uh, it's quite close. Everything is close in. You know, the, the 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 vistas are not long. You get to the coast, especially in particular parts of the coast. You know, the the landscape, the view just spreads out. And you can walk. I mean, and also I think the, 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 the straightforward nature of it helps as well. You can walk from one end of the beach to the other for miles and miles and miles and only pass a few people depending on when you go. I mean, often we would go in the late winter or in the early winter or in the, um, the late winter. So towards the end of the year or the beginning of the new year when it's not really the time to go to the coast. But she's quite happy to put herself up in a hotel somewhere near the seaside and go out to the beach if she wants to, go to the free cut if she wants to. And for me, that was just so anathema to, to, to what the coast was, because for me, like the coast was somewhere to go to do something, to go swimming, to always be in the sea, to have your feet in the sand. Um, you know, the Irish coast is cold, like the North Sea coast, actually, that's something that they do have in common. The sea is freezing, but that was always sort of the fun and the challenge, getting your head underwater. Um, 
and it lacked a little bit of yeah it was it's i mean anyone who's ever been to the belgian coast will know it's straight it's just one long almost interrupted uninterrupted straight line there's no energy there's no chaos uh, which is funny coming from belgium which is essentially uh, northern europe's most chaotic country <laughs> that's true so when i when I called you and you picked up the phone and it was like, um, what about going and exploring the Belgian coast? Was your first reaction, oh God, that's a part of Belgium I would prefer not yeah. to spend time, time in? Well, my first reaction was, how am I going to explain to her that I'm going to the coast by myself? <laughs> which, she, which she didn't understand at all because she knows my animosity towards the coast. And my second article was, or my second I thought was, oh shit, what am I going to write about that isn't 4,000 words of negativity? Like, how, how, how am I going to experience the coast in a way that isn't just me complaining about what it isn't than talking about what it is? So, okay, so now you're, you're, you know you're heading up, you kind of have all that running through your mind. How, how the hell do you kind of plan? Because the coast is, you know, it's a, a long coast full of different types of towns and villages. It stretches from you know, the French border to the Dutch border. Um, how do you plan your trip? Well, here's the, here's the fortunate thing. And probably the one thing that makes the Belgian coast better than the Irish coast is that you can travel it end to end, almost uninterruptedly on public transport. Anyone who's ever been to Ireland knows that Ireland is essentially unnavigable without a car. So that was a positive. And also being a massive public transport nerd, it had always been something I'd wanted to do on my like Belgian bucket list was to take the tram from one end of the border to the other. Um, and basically I got on Google Maps and started planning out all of the interesting places that you pass along the way. Now I understood, uh, maybe, maybe this is me coming from the southern part of our island. Um, I understood the tram to go southwest to northeast. But that was logical for me. Uh, it turned out subsequently, once I got on the tram, that I got on actually at the end of the line and the tram's supposed to start in Kanaka, which made absolutely no sense to me. My brain just couldn't understand that. But so I basically took out my map and I said, okay, if we're going from Dupana down at the very bottom, all the way up to Kanaka, what's interesting? Some of those places I'd been to before uh, along the route, some of the bigger cities I'd been to before. Um, a lot of it I really hadn't actually. A lot of it I just passed through on the tram itself or, or, or driving through or walking through. So a lot of the coast was actually quite unknown to me, apart from the obvious highlights. So it was just a question of, well, what am I going to do? What am I going to look at? Who am I going to talk to? What's interesting about the coast? And then very quickly you come to that idea of like the coast as a place to go and eat. Yeah, did, did you know very much about like beer or food or other drinks or just culinary culture at all on the coast? Um, I think it probably extended as far as the promenade and not much deeper than that. And the promenade, the food on the promenade, uh, the Belgian coast, by the most part, and I'm generalizing here, uh, looks a lot like the buildings that surround it. It's very beige, very beige and uncomplicated. Um, I knew about shrimp croquettes. I think anybody who lives in Belgium for any length of time will come to understand shrimp croquettes. Um, the seafood. Beer-wise, I actually... It didn't... It's, it, the Belgian coast is not, a, is not a part of Belgium that immediately pops out when you think about beer, for 
for example. It doesn't have, well, because it's not really a place. Like, okay, it's all in West Flanders and the West Hook, that sort of, the kind of poor Belgian beer traditions of the West Hook and West Flanders are not far away. So the beer, generally speaking, is good. But from the region itself, like the coastal region, the five or six kilometers from beach to, to inland, I didn't really know that much about. The region, you, you quickly find out, is very rich from the culinary side of things. So, you know, six Michelin-starred restaurants, the length of the coast, which is, I mean, by any measure, a pretty dense uh, collection of restaurants. Um, I've quite a, quite a, a lively cafe culture as well. Um, but the beers that they would be drinking in those cafes would be beers from the larger regional breweries inland. You know, um, people like Brare Strube, for example, came up quite a lot. I think a lot of the contract beers that you see along the coast that claim some purchase of the coast come from the breweries that are inland rather than the ones that are situated actually near the sea. Okay, so you... Um you plan out your trip, you have a few places in mind that you want to stop, a few people that you want to talk to. You get on the tram. What's, what's the tram like? Well, I think you got to reverse because before I get, you get on the tram, you got to travel from Brussels to the coast. And that's sort of a, a nice journey where you essentially kind of shed the urban. And then the further you get away from Brussels, you get the fields flatten out. And the clouds don't disappear. So day one. Uh, leaving Brussels, it was wet. Traveling through, you know, the Flemish lowlands countryside, it was cloudy. There was fog around the train. You couldn't really see much beyond the train tracks. And then, yeah, you get out at the uh, Panna, Adinkerke, um, and then the tram is there waiting for you in this, uh, in like the next little station over. And then next to that is Plopsaland, and next to that is the sea. And you immediately know you're at the seaside because you can you can smell it. Like it's that thing that when you're a child, when you're driving to the seaside, you can smell the sea air, the salt, you can hear the seagulls, you know that the sea, you can't see it from the train station because the train station is inland, but you know that it's just around the corner. And so the tram's waiting. Is it a pretty regular service? Yeah, I, I can't remember the timetable, but it's at least every 15 minutes. So there's always one tram there and one tram leaving sort of a thing. And um, people get on like for, for the tram is sort of a double life. Um, it exists because of the tourism of the region. So going back to, I mean, the first, I think the first trams, the first steam powered trams were in the second half of the 19th century. And it was all about tourism and it's still all about tourism. It's a way of getting tourists efficiently from one part of the city, one part of the coast to the next from the big, um, transport hubs in Ostende, the Panic, Nuka, getting them to all of the smaller towns. So you have that, but you also have between those towns, people using it as on their daily commute. So people doing the shopping, uh, people going to the supermarket, going to the hairdressers, meeting their friends, whatever. So you have an interesting mix of sort of sand, sand buckets and, and spades and people in their swimming togs and then older people with their little uh, supermarket caddy trolleys, you know, getting ready, going down the shops. And is, is it like, um, is it comfortable? Is it fast? Is it slow? Because um, I'm sure they've obviously renewed at different periods during the, the life of the tram, which I understand is a fairly long life and on a fairly unique 
line in terms of like it being one of the longest in the world. Yeah. But so, an, important, an important point to note is that there's no toilet on the tram. It is a tram. <laughs> so you, if you are traveling the tram from one, uh, one side of the country to the other and get, you, need, you do need to, and you're having a few beers, you do need to get off because you will need to take a, a, a personal break at, at a certain point. Now, there's a couple of, like as with all of these uh, public transport systems in Belgium, there's a couple of different generations of trams. So you have the older trams with the, with the soft seats and the worn upholstery, green, and they rattle. Then you have the newer trams, which are much more sleek, uh, shiny, a little less cozy, um, a little quieter. But it's not, a, it's not a quick tram. Like coast to coast, end to end in one journey, it's about two and a half hours for, to do 60 kilometers. Part one, we were born in the bed of salt and will perish in the brine. stop is a couple down the road um st edelsbots which is a small town inside a larger town so a lot of these small villages are part of bigger municipalities so st edelsbot is a part of coxera which is one of the sort of bigger resort towns and i wanted to go there because i'd heard about a restaurant and a family of fisher fishermen fisherwomen fishmongers um, who had been there a long time, six or seven generations, and one of the scions of the family had set himself up in a restaurant just out of town, a restaurant that took part of his maritime heritage and was trying to meld that with the agricultural um, hinterland around the, uh, the, the restaurant that he set up with his wife out there um, just outside of town in St. Edelsbach. So that's Ian with the Rungel. Um, the restaurant is Mon Dieu, and Ian and his wife founded that restaurant. Well, th this is the second iteration of the, same re of, of the same restaurant on the same location. And the location itself is really interesting because it's the former, uh, in English, I was trying to find it, the word to explain it, a grange is apparently what it's called. So it is the farm of the nearby abbey. So on the way out from St. Edelsbad to Mon Dieu, which is about a 15-minute bike ride, there's an, there's an abbey, Turdunen Abbey, and that's now a museum. You can go visit it. It used to be a large landowner in, in the area. And Mon Dieu is situated on the former farm of that. So it's not just a restaurant. There's also um, a cultural center next to the restaurant. And in the restaurant themselves, in one of the old pig sheds, have set up a little microbrewery in coalition with um, Brauerei Hüge, who brew a beer called St. Edelsbad. Uh, so they brew some of that St. Edelsbad at Mondieu at the restaurant, and then the rest is obviously brewed at uh, headquarters in, in Mela. And it was a really, a really interesting, quiet place 
just outside of the city. Well, it's not really a city, St. Edelsbad, it's a village. Um, and Ian, when we sat down to talk about why he set up the restaurant where he did, he was very clear in wanting to set up a restaurant close to where he came from. So he grew up in St. Edelsbad and the family still has their fish shop right in the center of town, about two minutes from the, from, from the tram stop. But he didn't want to be in the, in the touristy mix. He wanted somewhere a bit more contemplative. And when you get out to, to, to Mon Dieu, that's exactly what you find. It's, um, it's when you think about the coast and food, you always think about seafood. But actually, you forget that the Belgian coast is also, it's a rural region. So you have fishermen, but you also have farmers. And this seems like kind of a place where um, those two ideas, you know, come together to, to you know, formulate that vision of, of food on the Belgian coast. Yeah, so Ian was very passionate about agricultural produce. We talked a lot about fish and a lot about his background um, as the son of a fishmonger, but he was equally enthusiastic about the fields and the suppliers, his suppliers in, you know, within a couple of kilometers of the restaurant. Um, and he himself has a kitchen garden out the back where they grow not all the produce, but a, a lot of the produce that's used in a restaurant. So uh, peppers, tomatoes, uh, root vegetables, all in little greenhouses. And he was he could have waxed lyrical, I think, about the, the quality of the, the polders. So the polders are these former marshland drained lands that sort of once you like if you think of the coast of, first of all, it's the sea. Then you have the beach. Then you have the promenade. Then you have the tram line, the cars, the town and the fields. And the fields are extremely the, the, the soil there is, as Ian was telling me, extremely rich, very good quality particularly for things like potatoes. So they were, I, I mean, anytime I talked to anybody on the trip, they were, they were at pains to remark upon the quality of the potatoes produced there. Uh, and Ian himself was saying, you know, this is the, this is the taste of this, of, of this region, of this place where I grew up. It's that combination of the shrimps, for example, that were fished just off of the, off of the coast, buttermilk made with milk from cows, so a little bit of potato, you mix that together and that's sort of, for him, that was the pure essence of what the, if we want to say the terroir, the, the taste of the coast. And also also a cuisine that is very, you know, these are staple foods. Yes, they're, I was going to say they're filling, they're relatively cheap and uh, they can be delicious as well. So, you know, you've got, you've, you've got the combination of the spuds and the, and the shrimp and the, and the buttermilk. Yeah, it's, it's food for 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 people who don't have a lot of money i mean and that's the thing you know we don't maybe necessarily think about flanders like that anymore but 100 100 years 150 years ago flanders was was the poor part of the country and it was a subsistence diet and now fortunately for them that subsistence they had a, they had a lot to 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 grab hold of they had the sea and they had the land but yeah there wasn't anything fancy doing with it and that was also um the kind of inspiration and the the spirit that that Ian wanted for Mon Dieu, the second iteration of the restaurant. The first one had won a Michelin star himself um, and they had voluntarily chosen to close it, start something new. And the, the mantra was minimum of fuss, maximum of flavor. So simple food, good quality produce, well executed. I was born here just um, a few
few kilometers from here, so I was raised okay. here all the time. Uh, I've, I've been living here all the time. Yeah. Um, near the sea, and my ancestors for five generations were fishermen. Okay. Fishermen this is Ian Wittevrongel of Mondieu, a restaurant in St. Edisbald. Uh huh. So my brother is still doing that. Uh, so we. We're pretty much attached to to the to the place. Uh, yeah. Okay. Nevertheless, I've been uh, working in New York for uh, three months uh, when I was uh, twenty <laughs> years younger. old. Yeah. yeah, when I was younger, until the money got uh, yeah. until I get broke, got broke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so that's me. So I was uh, here in the, the hotel school in Coxsady, which yeah. is a very yeah, yeah, yeah. renowned one. So I was just nearby. That's why I went over there. Nothing, uh, nothing more than that. But I was still, I was always interested in eating and yeah. good food. So when I was uh, looking for a restaurant, but I didn't want to be at the coast, near the coast. Uh, Why not? It's too busy. Okay. Uh, too busy. I wanted five uh, ingredients. Not too busy, but not too far away yeah. uh, from everywhere. Uh, charming. This is uh, charming, of mm, course. Uh, parking space <laughs> was important. And uh, the calm. Uh, not from uh, so it was too busy and uh, so I wanted to be in the calm, yeah. but not too far away. That was uh, about okay. about it. Uh, and then so we, and um, Schepen from uh, Coxede told yeah. me, well, why don't you go and see Tumbuhade? As a student, when I was young, younger, I went from my home every day, twice or four times even to Vurne yeah. with my bike, passing here. And at the moment, at that moment already, oh, this was a wonderful uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. area place. So we came in uh, with the, the sheep and, uh, and the, the counselor, and um, it was a mess, of course. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I said, yeah. A lot of work. <laughs> a lot of work, a lot of money. <laughs> because uh, the, the exterior is, is the coxade, is the yeah. community, but the, the inside was, was it. I had, to pay. Guys, I had yeah. to pay. It was too charming, and I said, okay, let's do it. Uh, and then um, we started in 2005, 2012, I believe, I got the Michelin star. Yeah. But I was so fed up with the Michelin star, not with the Michelin star itself, but as at the, the, the customers who were really expecting uh, the uh, unexpected, uh, yeah. let me say. So it's I, a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure, and you, at the end, you can't do what you want to do. Yeah. Because you're, you you are so always afraid of losing the star. No, 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 no. Okay. It's not the Michelin, because that's a big mistake. The Michelin doesn't say anything, yeah. what you have to do. They don't say anything. That's my, that's my uh, um, point of view and what I experienced. But it's the customers. Okay. Yeah. They want, when you give a glass of champagne, they want five or six appetizers. Yeah. Okay. When you have a Michelin star. When you don't have it, I don't have it anymore. They don't ask. <laughs> <laughs> so it makes your life a little bit easier. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. A lot easier. And I earn my, my, uh, my money better now than, that. than before. First of all, I will give you a tomato. Okay. And when you eat it tonight, you will understand everything. Right. Okay. <laughs> you will understand. You will never buy it. Or you, never, you have to buy it. But yeah. you, will, you, would, you would like to never have to buy Another from the shop. Voila. Yeah. So I'll give you one. Remember, remember, okay? So what I have here is my salad, uh, fennel, which didn't do well uh, this year because it's too, it was too hot. Yeah. Uh, fennel, uh, some herbs, um, um, beetroot, um, yeah, herbs, I have it, I said. Mm. Um, strawberries, um, 
Frambosen. Raspberries. Raspberries, yes. Uh, courgette, zucchini. Yeah. So the tomatoes, different uh, uh, varieties. Uh, what else do I have? Cucumbers, uh, which are uh, uh, peas, mm. which is uh, finished now. And yeah, that's about it, I think. Uh, of course, the fish is wonderful. Yeah. Uh, but then again, it depends what kind of fisherman you have. If he is uh, also very picky. And uh, mm -hmm. when a fisherman goes into sea and he has a sonar and he sees a pack of fish. Yeah. Okay, what does he do? The good fisherman, he, after half an hour or an hour, when his when nets are not full but half full, yeah. he takes it up. So the, the fish is not crushed. He takes it up and he starts again. Yeah. What does the bad fisherman do? He takes all the way, all he can get. His nets are full, the fish is crushed. And then the first fisherman, it can be that the, the fish is gone when he takes up his nets. Yeah. That's the difference. The second one gets more money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's with everything. Yeah. It's it's with the veal. It's with everything. It's yeah. uh, you have to have good producers, and then you can have good produce. That's the most important. It doesn't matter where you are. I think it is more important to have the good producer and the good vision. Yeah. Of course, here it's a uh, very soil is very good. Okay. Uh, for instance, we have the asparagus, the asparagus from uh, the, the, the dunes. So they're they're grown in not in sand, but in a, in a mixture of sand yeah. and uh, sandy clays. So yeah, yeah, voila, voila. So they're much more sweeter. They're lovely. Yeah. Okay, so um, you're, you go back to the tram few stops what's the next what's the next place you visited the next place is Ostonkirke and by the time I get to Ostonkirke the weather is really turned on me I mean I don't know if I shared a photo of a photo with you while I was while I was en route but um the heavens really opened up at Ostonkirke and I thought yes this is the narrative this is what I want this is this is <laughs> this the, is reality this is reality. This is the Belgian coast, unvarnished, unfiltered. This so is what I'm talking it was about. This is why I was the sadistic it. writer in you that was like full of joy rather than kind of, why am I here? I wish I hadn't come. Yeah. <laughs> it's easier to write a bad review than a good one. Um, so uh, I, got off, I got off the tram and I followed the crowd. They got off the tram with me around the corner and there there's a little, a little square on the, on, the, um, on the promenade. And throughout the summer... They have demonstrations of horse shrimpers. So this is an ancient tradition that would have historically been all along the North Sea coast. So Belgium, Northern France, Southern England, up to the Netherlands and around. And the tradition is to take horses, strong, like dray, almost dray horses, go out into the shallows uh, just off, off the beach where there are sandbanks. And on those sandbanks live shrimp, uh, gray shrimp, and go fishing for shrimp. And this is something that's been done in, in Ostonkirke for, you know, at least since the 1600s, 1500s. Um, and they would go out there. Uh, fishing season starts in the spring and ends in, in the autumn. And this is how they would have gotten their shrimp. So th the men, historically, the men would have gone off on their boats out to the deeper sea, out to the North Sea, and the women would have stayed behind 
and fished for shrimp. Nowadays, Ostunkirke, Kuxeda, is one of the very few places in the world, if not one of the, if not the only place in, at least on the North Sea coast, where that tradition still survives. And what they do every summer is run a series of demonstrations where they go out with the horses for about an hour and a half, 90 minutes, and they fish, and they show people, and then they bring the catch back on land and they cook it for onlookers um, who are waiting for them. And we were waiting and waiting. <laughs> in the rain. And in the rain. And, and the wind. So it was, sort of, it was sort of like an evangelical procession. So we were waiting... The horses were there, the fishermen were there in their bright yellow um, rain jackets, the wax jackets. And then they got, they, they saddled up, got on their horses and started going down with all of the equipment. And once we got down to the beach, there was another crowd waiting for us down at the, down at the waterline. Some of them were wearing, some of them weren't wearing any shoes at all. Some of them were, you know, ankle deep in their, in their, in their runners. Everybody was wet. The rain was coming in into our faces. You couldn't see, probably, there was like a, a dome around us by the time we got to the beach, so you couldn't really see that fire down the coast. You knew it was there, but sort of like a kilometer away, that's when that's when the world ended. And we were all just standing there watching. Some people had umbrellas. I didn't uh, have an umbrella. I don't know if I even had a hood. Um, I wasn't I wasn't equipped. Um, and we watched, and they went out, and they came back, and they went out, and they came back. They filled up their buckets, and they came back in. Uh, but I couldn't hack it. And I mean, do, do you, was it young guys? Was it older guys? Because um, this is kind of, you know, it's like a, it's a heritage activity. And yeah. I guess, I don't know who, who you know, that maybe the, the locals are proud to preserve that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, they received UNESCO um, recognition for intangible cultural heritage. So it's now in the inventory of intangible cultural heritage. Uh, and with that has come a sort of rejuvenation of the tradition. So, you know, like a lot of these folk traditions, by the beginning of the 21st century, it had been denuded and denuded down to the bare minimum to a couple of hobbyists. Uh, and at the turn of the century, early 2000s, there was only 16 or so. There wasn't that many people doing it still. Um, and that's all changed now at UNESCO. And now what you have is a mixture of the old guys and the young people and it's not just so historically it would have been a lot of men doing it in the last you know before unesco now they're also getting more women involved women are able to get recognition for it too and oftentimes it's a family tradition so it's passed on from father to son or father-in-law to son-in-law or daughter-in-law in this instance now and um, so you had a bit of a mix of uh, older hands uh, younger hands men and women A little bit later on, I was able to drop into a cafe just down the road, which is run by a family of horse shrimpers. And in Dutch, they're called uh, Paardevissers, and in, in dialect, Paardevissers. And there's an estaminated Paardevisser, which is about a 15-minute walk again, just outside of town, which is run by um, Johan Cazier, his wife, and uh, Ian, his son-in-law, and Ian's wife as well, so the daughter. So it's a family affair. The two men are... Uh, fisherman uh, the younger of the two is currently doing his apprenticeship to become officially accredited 
Um, so I sat down and I had a chat with them in a family cafe to talk about sort of their history, how they got involved, what they think of it and, and what they get out of it. So here Owen's talking to Johan Kazier of the Istamini Perdewisser. En hoe lang zijn jullie hier mee bezig? Met de, uh, uh, wij 2004. Oké. Okay. En de vorige uitbater, Maurice, was ook paardenvisser. Ja. En heeft dat uh, 27 jaar gedaan. Dat is hier begonnen uh, het verhaal in 1977. En do you think because of the UNESCO recognition that it's something that will continue, or is it just like we're we're riding this kind of wave at the minute and we'll see where it goes? Uh, talking to the two lads, I'd have, I'd say that they're that it definitely has a future. So previously, to if you wanted to be a horse fisherman, part of it, sir, you just got a horse, found somebody, you went out and you did it. There's a whole process now uh, where you have to do an apprenticeship with an existing horse fisherman. You have to do a test, uh, both theory and practical. You have to, you have to be good physically, obviously, because you're sitting on like the normal fishing session would take three hours rather than the 90 minute demonstrations. Um, and there's a whole structure there now. And because it has that recognition, they're able to use that recognition and make that an identity for the, for the town. And you see it everywhere. So on the beach where we were all gathered, there was a couple of statues of horse fishermen. You see them, you see little idents and, 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 and reliefs on people's, you know, letter boxes on the walls of places. They're really, really proud of the fishermen. And the fact that it's recognized, they have a, an annual uh, horse fishing shrimp festival every year where they have a Miss Ostankerke, uh, the, 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 the queen of the shrimp. I don't know exactly. That's probably, I'm probably doing, <laughs> I'm probably doing her majesty a disservice by calling her the queen of the shrimp. Um, but there is like a, 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 every year a, a festival all around the tradition. So I think, I mean, it looks healthy. There's a, there's a beautiful museum which is just being renovated at the moment next to the cafe. And the cafe itself is a piece of history. I mean, you go in there and immediately you can smell that, 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 that salty, fishy smell is everywhere. Like I was in there early in the morning, they were just getting ready for the, for the day's work and you could smell it. It was like, it was just baked into to the place and you got a sense of sort of baked into Ostankirk as well. Uh, nu is de procedure, sinds UNESCO dat het wereldaarsgoed is, ja. is de procedure van twee jaar. In mijn tijd bestond dat nog niet. Uh, en sommige mensen die denken dat ze er rijk van worden. Maar dat is niet. En dat is niet. <laughs> dat is meer passie dan. Ja, passie voor paard en zee. Ja. Just outside of the Perdivisser, actually, there is a little memorial garden um, with a monolith in it, which has the names of uh, men, men and boys who lost their lives doing the Aislandfart. 
and just as much as the the horse shrimping is a big part of Ostunkirk's tradition along the whole coast the Iceland fart which is the Iceland journey i think is the literal translation is really important to this sort of cultural history and uh, the folk memory of the coast and this was again all the way from you know early modern europe right through to the 1930s when i think the last the last steam the last sail powered um boat went or steam powered boat was when the men would go from the ports of Ostende and Knokke and Middelkerke and wherever and they would take their boats and they would sail up to the cod rich um seas off of Iceland and they would be gone when they were flying under sail they would be gone for six months you know and they go and they they catch the catch their fish ice them cool them and bring so them this back was, and it that was, was an economic necessity to, to basically make these journeys at that time absolutely yeah this was what kept I mean before before tourism came to the coast the coast was a collection of fishing villages and ports and it was a sort of a clearinghouse for Belgium's North Sea industry which was fishing and the Eslandvart was you know the central aspect of that and it was a dangerous journey too a long and dangerous journey just I mean as any maritime community in Ireland as well would have experienced you know a lot of ships don't make it home and the men and them don't make them home either so just next to the to the perdivisor is a is a little is a little monolith and a little garden because it's on the grounds of a former church uh which says the names of the fishermen who died where they came from what their what their home port was and when they died people live along the coast in a lot of countries often have like this reputation of being tough and you know standing up against the elements and you know here you've got this experience of the Eastland Vart to try to survive economically and a lot of tragedy with that trip but you also have other things uh, that have happened to people on the coast so I think the because of its location obviously it it featured in the war um, quite heavily and there's a kind of a, a, a sort of a, a sepia tone sadness that still exists, um, as it does in a lot of Flanders, but you know, in its own way, maybe on the coast. Did you did you kind of come across anything like that? Yeah, I mean, as you'll know if you've ever travelled around, particularly around West Flanders, you can't you can't pass through a village cemetery without spotting one or two uh, white headstones, um, most of them from the First World War. And if you think about it, in the First World War, the 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 line of contact between the allies and and the axis powers was it the axis powers the germans what went straight through the coast so from newport which is not right in the middle of the coast but it's it's there on the coast all the way through so the coast was split in two between the little rump that was always under belgian control that was never that was never invaded by the germans and then everything else which was run by the germans and it was all cut up with barbed wire and trenches and everything um, and that's most obvious. So in Newport itself, there is, you come through the tram, the tram goes through the town and there's a big industrial harbor there. And as you loop around the harbor, you come back out to the other side of town and there's this massive sort of round uh, memorial to 
the Belgian king at the time, Albert. And in that is a sort of massive memorial to the Western Front, to the to the West Front, as they would call it. Um, and you can't escape it in Coxera, you walking from one place to another, you pass by the municipal graveyards and the graves are there. And then alongside all up the coast, you have, as we were talking about, these memorials to 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 fishermen, either like unknown like unknown fishermen who've died or specific disasters. You have uh, memorials to ferry disasters, which you know were were you know continued to happen right up until the nineteen eighties. Um, so there is a sort of melancholy feel to the coast a little bit especially when you're soaking wet especially when it's wet and it's gray <laughs> well and, i was just i was and and the coast is empty and there's nobody there because it's quiet because it's raining and it's wet and nobody goes outside well i was just going to say you know with all this like tragedy and the memorials and the piss and rain and the rickety tram please tell me that your next stop is like the sun came out and people were greeted you with joyous songs of of what were what happened on the next stop well the sun, the, the rain stopped at least. Um, by the time we sort of trundled into Ostende, which was the next big town along the line, the rain had stopped at least. And you could see the people were starting to come back out. The sun had not quite made its presence felt yet, but um, I was able to sit in a cafe with the window open and not get drenched. Um, and Ostende, you have to think like Ostende is really the, the only city on the coast it is the cultural and probably at this point the economic capital of the coast it is a city it has all of the functions of the city and um, probably the least sort of despite the fact that it's the biggest resort on the coast it's the least resort like if you know what i mean um you could you could be in ostenda and not realize that you're on the seaside Places that I'd rather be, but I probably need to be here. Ostena, I suppose it's the first, it's the first um, resort town. It was the it was for the, for a long time it was the the main resort town because it was under the the beneficence of the Belgian royal family. So first Leopold I and then Leopold II made it their home from home when they wanted to escape Brussels, and they built it in their image. So if you can imagine the sort of em- empire imperial buildings that you see in Brussels, big and imposing. You have smaller versions of those in, in Ostend. And it's really quite interesting because you have still, you have sort of different kinds of Ostend. You have still a little bit of the rough fishing town that's there. You have that sort of imperial faded grandeur of the Belle Epoque from the, from the end of the 19th century. And you have this sort of modern glitzy um, tourist industry there, which would look similar to any kind of touristy seaside town, I think probably in France and, and in the Netherlands. Um, and Ostende, because it has this mix, it's kind of attracted different kinds of people 
over the years, uh, all of which, weirdly enough, have something in common. They're probably trying to escape something else and they find some kind of sucker in one or other aspect of Ostenda's past or present, These the, the different kinds of Ostendas that exist. So give me some examples. Well, um, the most famous one, at least from the Ostend tourist office, is Marvin Gaye. Classic example. <laughs> it's like, who's the most famous Belgian? Uh, Tintin. Uh, who's the most famous American to ever live in Belgium? Marvin Gaye. Uh, so he arrived in yeah, he arrived in Belgium. What the hell was Marvin Gaye doing on Ostend? Well, exactly, exactly. So he was invited there by a music promoter um, in the latter part of his like, life. But he so didn't he visit, was, he, he lived in Ostend. He lived there, yeah. So he lived, he lived in Ostend. He spent his time playing cards and drinking with locals in the bars on the promenade, the fishermen and the people who run the bars, playing darts, doing whatever. Um, he was there escaping a bad personal life back in, in the US. I mean, drug abuse, family estrangement, uh, critical failure, financial disaster, all of those things he tried to leave behind coming to Ostend. Um, and it was a very productive time for him. So he wrote, he performed for the first time Sexual Healing, the last, his last great hit in Ostend. And he describes it as a place that uh, he would never have come to, but a place where he needed to be. It gave him, it gave him that distance from, from his troubles, at least for a short, uh, brief creative period before he obviously went back to the States and it wasn't long after he, he left Ostend that, that he died. But that's sort of a classic example. Um, people like Hugo Klaus, obviously uh, Belgian listeners will know Hugo Klaus very well, a very famous Flemish writer, the sort of the uh, writer of, of, of Flanders. Yeah, he's, a, he's of like a Fre Flemish literary great. Yeah, I was trying to find what, a, what, an, what an equivalent would be um, in Ireland. Someone like a Seamus Heaney, but from a sort of, I mean, he wrote poetry, but he was more, more fiction. Patrick Kavanagh, um, he, I don't know. Patrick Kavanagh, that yeah, that's a good, a good one, actually. Yeah. Maybe le more, more, I want to say, don't want to say poetic, maybe more, f yeah. Yeah. Um, and he was, he was, he was drawn in an earlier time in the 1940s and the 1950s to post-war Ostende. Ostende had taken a bit of a battering during the war because of its strategic importance on both sides. Uh, and you pass up along the coast near Ostende, you can still see the old German fortifications that would have been installed during the war. Um, and he came in a post-war Ostende where it was halfway between this old town and whatever it was going to become in the 60s and the 70s as mass tourism took hold. And he would go there, find a cheap hotel on the promenade, one which unfortunately is no longer exists. And he would do the same as Marvin Gaye did. He would go to the bars, he would hang out with the, the rough sorts. And I suppose for him as a sort of literary intellectual type figure, you, get a, you could get a sense of descending into the, the working class milieu, you know, finding some authenticity and writing about it, living it. And for the rest of his life, he had a connection to the coast. And when he died, you know, 50 years later, he, his last request was that he would have his ashes spread, released on, on, on the Ostend promenade, which they, which they did. Um, and, and even further, you go back to before the war and Belgium was a, was a refuge for a lot of people fleeing Germany next door. Um, and Ostend in particular, because it still had this, it had a, still a halo of that Belle Epoque era of grandeur and, middle class, upper middle class, um, 
success and lifestyle. And it attracted uh, a certain cadre of people fleeing from, from Nazi Germany. Was there anyone you were able to talk to, to to get a feel for, yeah, a little bit more about the history of Ostend? I had planned uh, when I left that morning to meet with El Snick. Uh, my name is El Snick. I'm a literary translator, mostly known from the work of Josef Roth. I have a PhD in Josef Roth. She is a uh, professor at the University of Ghent, a translator, um, a general all-around all-knowing person about Ostenda, particularly in that time period, because her specific focus is on two writers, uh, German writers, German emigres, uh, Jewish, well, actually they're Austrian, but they write in German, so Germanic, uh, Joseph Roth and Stefan Zweig, uh, the latter of which has sort of had a renaissance, I think partly thanks to Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, one of those writers who is extremely famous in his lifetime, like the famous where you would recognize him on the street, uh, but in the years after his death, just kind of disappeared off the cultural landscape and has had a bit of a renaissance. And then uh, his friend, Joseph Roth, who was a journalist and writer too, um, most famous for writing the Radetzky March, which is a sort of a, a peon to pre-World War One Austro-Hungarian Empire in Vienna, a really interesting book. And the two of them found themselves in the summer of 1936 in Ostenda, and Els and I, Unfortunately, we couldn't meet where we wanted to, which was the old haunt of the two men when they were here. But we talked later on the phone uh, to get a sense of what the kind of what what the Ostend was that they discovered, why they were here, and and what they got from it. Joseph Roth lived in a in a hotel, an old hotel in the neighborhood of the old station that is disappeared now, and the old harbor where is still the Mercator ship now. And he was like he's ever in every city, also in Marseille. He preferred uh, the 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 place in in the neighborhood of the station and the harbor, and he sat in the cafes to write to do his yeah. job. Stefan Zweig was in his pension, Pension Floreal, on the with blick on the sea, yeah, Meeresblick. Yeah. Uh, and he also he worked, he worked, he was there with uh, with Fuchs, with his uh, redacteur, yeah. yeah. And he, he's been working all the time. And in the evening, they met each other at a restaurant called Almondo. Yeah, they were just occupied with the history and with with, with what was happening to Austria. Yeah. No, and, uh, I, th I think they were very sad. And then, of course, from time to time, they met some of the other exile yeah. artists that were there. But that they, they, that, well, that was not the reason that they were in Ostend. Yeah. Any of the any of the locations that they would have that they would have experienced, they would have enjoyed. Are they still there? Um, I think the only thing is the Brasserie du Parc, mm -hmm. where we had plaquettes. Yeah. The photo from, but it's not it's the right, it's the wrong place. The right place is called now Restaurant La Basque. There we have a plaquette as well. That okay. was the former Hotel Helvetia. So if you were in Ostend and you enter in Restaurant La Basque, it's a Chinese owner, a lady. She's very kind. You can ask her to see Josef Roch de Franswijk. Um, and then a bit, you have, of course, the, the royal buildings. Yeah, with Brasserie yeah. Albert. But that's all. The rest is imagination. When I do a Josef Roth, Stefan Zweig tour, I just, we have to, it's all imagination. It's, it's horror what they have done there. But I think in the atmosphere, Ostend stayed the same. Okay. 
free people drinking a lot. That, yeah, so the real mentality of the real Ostend people, maybe now it's changing because uh, the, 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 the mart of the, the house mart is, is so exploding and Ostend is a place where you still can buy something. Like yep. many artists from Brussels, Antwerp, Ghent, they buy something now in, in Ostend and Ostend had a very bad uh, reputation a long time. Boats came there from England for passengers that came to drink and drink and drink for mm -hmm. one day and there were many fightings in the cafes and there were immensely lots of cafes nice jazz cafes that's all it's cleaned up mm. yeah and now it's now and now is the gentrification so richer people come to understand and now it's maybe now it will change and i mean you got all these kind of people coming you know, there's this kind of sense of some glory still hanging on here. You got intellectuals, you got creatives, you got people that maybe are a bit lost in their life. Did they have a drink? Is there anywhere to good to eat and drink in Ostend? Well, they did. Yeah, I mean, so the people like people like Rottenzweig, they spent their days drinking. Now, you you read what they've written about it, and they weren't massively positive about some of the food and drink. Joseph Roth was an alcoholic, so you can read into that what you will. So there was plenty to to eat and drink. Um, Gay for Marvin Gaye and for Igor Klaus it was the same and particularly the kind of era of Marvin Gaye that sort of roused about fishing town some of that still exists the drinking culture the cafes is still there um, and I made my I made my way to one of them in particular which is a family a family uh, hotel which was set up a long time ago and has now sort of morphed into part old school Ostend Cafe and part new school beer cafe. So we go back to talking about the coast's beer traditions. It is probably the most recognizable, the most famous beer themed cafe or bar on the coast. And that was Hit Bottleshire. Hit Bottleshire, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, the little the little bottle. little bottle. And so what did you meet the people that, that run that place? Yeah, so that was set up. Uh, so I met James de Simpelaar, who's the head chef and sort of manager so it's a bar on the ground floor and then there's a hotel upstairs and it was James's parents who had who had uh, opened the hotel at the time still when the ferries used to come over from Dover and the UK coast and they would bring over weekenders from England who would come on on the on the promise of a cheap hotel cheap beer filling food good weather who knows and then they would get back on the boat and they would and they would go home. And that was sort of the Ostends, the Ostend of the 1970s and 1980s, um, a working class holiday resort. And so James's parents had set up the hotel and, and he's in charge now. And over time, him and his father had gradually pushed and expanded both the space and also the bar's reputation as a place for good beer. And now as sort of classic for anyone who um, who goes to a Belgian beer cafe, their beer menu is, you know, is dense. It started about next year. It's going to be forty years ago. Forty or yeah. zero. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my pa my parents started uh, with the, with the, the the main building mm. was hotel hotel Marion, um, and that was only hotel. We had twenty rooms. Uh, 
there was only one sink in the room and uh, one shower uh, and one bath in the whole building and the toilet was on the hallway yeah and it was 400 francs so 10 euros a night <laughs> this is james de simpelare of café uh, bottle in ostende uh, yeah so renovations and renovations but, but also the, the the beer list got bigger yeah because we had a, an extra cellar uh, and then we had about uh, from yeah, one, 130, 150 to, to 200 to 300 kind of, uh, beer types. Uh, now we have also about 300, but it all depends. Could be 280, 290. Yeah. Like in winter times when we have the Christmas beer, it could be 310. Yeah. So it uh, goes a little bit up and down. And do you decide what goes on the menu then? Uh, or is it a group uh, uh, decision? No, no, no. It's, uh, well, but every year we, we what sells, what doesn't sell, yeah. what's uh, we say it's not, not, not selling enough. We, we put in the the, the Aston, eh? and then we give the opportunities to small breweries yeah. uh, to sell their beer here. Um, because the, the big book of breweries you can find nearly everywhere, but if you want to have uh, just to a small brewery and people who like to drink a different beer, they come to here and yeah. they, they expect that, that you have it here. Yeah. So is it is it just so I can understand like what the what the menu's like, are we talking like a big diversity of styles? Are we talking mostly regional family brewers? Are we is there like a, a any sort of modernity in there? Or is it kind of so ad hoc and weirdly compiled that you can't sort of describe the identity of it? Um, I think it's probably all of those things uh, combined along with, um, so it's not just a menu. So you, you have, you have all of the Belgian classics, the Trappists, the Abbey beers, but you also have some of the newer stuff, particularly the regional stuff from, from, from Bruges, which is not too far away, obviously, and from the West Hook. And then inside of that, you have style explanations. So what are, what are these beers? You have jokes. So there's like a joke section as well. Um, (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised. I can't remember offhand now. I wouldn't be surprised if it was all published in Comic Sans to give you to give you a sense of, of what we're talking about here. But it fits within the bar because the bar is also almost a living museum. Like for example, on the first floor, you have you have uh, a decommissioned water co- watering cooling system from a, like a 19th century Belgian brewery. You have Belgian beer paraphernalia all over the place, signposts directing you to say however hundred many miles it is from there to to Deuville or to Orval or whatever. So it, I mean, it lives and it breeds beer. They have their own beer. They they brew a beer not on site, but they brew a beer um, in one of the one of the breweries nearby. Yeah, and it's like cooking with food. So James, he's a chef by trade. He's always worked in the hospitality industry. I, he grew up in the hotel from like the, from the age of eight, um, and he cooks with beer now. And he, as as you talk to a lot of chefs. And, and, and bar owners, restaurant owners who work with beer, you always hear that common refrain of when we did it in the beginning, we were the only ones. And people said we were mad. And James will tell you the same story. When he started cooking with beer, people said, don't do that. People don't want that. Cook with wine. You know, that's that's what we're talking about. But he persevered and he, they, 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 they make their own Trappist ale bread. They make, you know, sh- um, I think Rochefort ice cream. They have obviously shrimp croquettes, which they use beer, their own beer that they make as well. So, so, so they're, they're it's taking it seriously, and it's something they care about. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, upstairs in the hotel, all of the rooms are themed 
by particular breweries with that which will have those beers in the little mini fridge so you know it's beer if you don't like beer you probably shouldn't stay there what makes a good ostent cafe as a cafe boss yeah what makes a good cafe uh we we do something different that somebody else doesn't does yeah so we have a, a, a big selection of beer do you uh, have a favorite uh, I, I know what people. I hate it when people uh, ask me that as a beer uh, writer. I like I like drinking white shimmer. Okay. Uh, white shimmer and blue shimmer. Yeah. That my favorite uh, beers. Uh, Lupulus also like it. I'm not not very fun of gozes. Okay. Uh, I will drink one if to taste, but uh, I won't say I will drink a total bottle. Yeah. Um, what makes this place special is the offer that you guys have. Uh, the offer you. we have the, the 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 interior of the bar, but uh, it's, uh, especially the the, the 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 total concept of 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 the whole uh, uh, business. We have we have the bar, we have the hotel. Uh, we have our own beer, we're cooking with beer, so people come, they, they, st they stay in the hotel, they come and have a meal in the bar, they stay for a drink, uh, so they must be very happy if, we, if they come back and yeah. they, they enjoy, like in the hotel rooms, all the hotel rooms are also named after a, a brewery. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the layout in the room is from uh, the brewery that the, the room is named after. Oh, yeah. um, in the fridge of the in the room is also a beer of the brewery, and in our own house beer, the Ostense Straven Quadruple. Uh, in the information map, you have also the information of, of, of well, uh, check out, check in, all that, but yeah. also the information of the brewery. Okay. The, yeah. the small history of the brewery. So um, what James was telling me when he, when they, when they first, so he was a home brewer as well as being a chef and they would brew in the kitchen and the beers would be, well, you can imagine home brews, you know, he himself said that they weren't fantastic. Uh, and when he wanted to expand production just down the road, probably about 10 minutes in the direction of the, of, of the beach, there was a new brewery, which had just opened up, which had formerly been a shop and a, and a, and a tasting space and was now starting to brew their own beers. And that was Stadsbrauwe Hitkulschip. Yeah, see, here we go. Stadsbrauwe Hitkulschip. Stadsbrauwe Hitkulschip, which is the city brewery Kulschip? Yeah, that's did it. You, yeah. Did you find out about the name? Um, they don't have a Kulschip. Yeah, so <laughs> is it some aspirational? I think aspirational. it's aspirational. I think, and they have a, they have a deep... When, we, when I talked with uh, the two owners, Sandy and I, they have a deep appreciation for like lambic tradition okay um and i think that's maybe and skip i don't know My thought, i would love yeah, to say that it's there a was flemish some pun in there, that but, uh, many english speakers will miss perhaps yeah we are the two people from uh, artisan uh -huh. parents okay doing what my father and my mother was uh, were butchers okay and they were into fish and, uh, uh, and so restaurants. Here Owen's talking to the owners of Brauerit Kulskip. Here 
Eve Mostre and Sandy Mayor. And are you both from here? I'm from here. I'm from Isenham. Oh, okay. How did you end up in Australia? Uh-huh. The love. I see, I see. The, love. the same reason I ended up in Belgium. <laughs> uh, where are you from? Ireland. Well. <laughs> yeah. A little bit further than Isenham. <laughs> yeah. So, so what what sort of size are they? Are they located in the in the t- middle of the town? What are they making? They are tiny, uh, bigger now than they used to be. Um, but I think I remember. I don't know if they said it in the interview, but they they did used to claim that they were the smallest city brewery in Belgium. Okay. Uh, and essentially, they grew out of being a shop. So I've um, so there's the, the pair of them at it. I was the um, sort of businessman and and the salesperson behind it he comes from a from a beer sales background and they originally started off with a shop and then they inherited from another brewery a very small maybe even something like 400 liters uh equipment uh a very small brew house where they started brewing small batch beers um the kind of beers that they that they enjoyed drinking that they didn't see being brewed for the coast or on the coast, as we were talking about earlier. So uh, light, refreshing, easy drinking beers with a bit of character, uh, bone dry. So none of the none of the kind of sweetness or sugariness that you might find in more industrial Belgian styles like blondes or Trappist or strong blondes. Very much sort of beers that go well with food. And with a sort of a touch of their own, a little touch of the coast. So if that's brewing with uh, salt or brewing with um, foraged herbs from the dunes. Mostly when you start talking to people who also brew at the same level as we started with, 60 liters, they always talk about adding sugars and then some flavored aromas and very special specialty hops and, and you know this was not the way we wanted to brew we wanted to make good honest beer to start with mm-hmm. but we kept by that principle because you don't have to add all that stuff to your beer yeah and still try to make a, a good one So I'm I'm okay. I'm 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 getting there. I haven't yet discovered once I get to my hotel in Dahan, which is a couple of stops over, that uh, my notebooks have essentially been waterlogged, and my computer is not, is the, the screen is not functioning anymore. So I need to when I get to my hotel in Dahan, I take everything out, change my socks, I change my clothes. I have a shower because I'm still cold from the rain earlier. I put everything on towels and on radiators get dressed and head off uh, to my next stop, which was almost the end of the line already in uh, Knocka. Part three. Colors seeping in. 
Knocker is probably what I imagine Ostende might have been when the Kings were still interested. It's the it's the second home of Belgium's elite. It's a place where you're as likely, if not more likely, to hear French being spoken than Dutch on the beach because it's where like the the moneyed classes go. Even it's though it's politics. on the total opposite side of the French Even border, it's, it's on closer the, yeah. to the Dutch border. Yeah. It's as far away as you can get from France, probably. Actually, yeah, it's as far away on the coast as you can get from yeah. France. Uh, but it's where it's where people from Brussels would go, like politicians, ex-prime ministers, industrial people, the current, well, actually, the, 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 the father of the current king who abdicated in favor of his son used to go there with his mistress to visit his, his then illegitimate child, Delphine, who's since been recognized as his official there's a little bit of royal trivia for you um villas bentley's there's a casino and is it is it predicated on, on the fact that kanaka as a council have some sort of tax situation or is it just the the vibe of the place that i think it's a i think it's a bit of both it's certainly so kanaka the 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 family the kind of feudal family who who, who founded ran and owned a lot of Kanaka for most of the 20th century were, yeah, they were wealthy and they wanted a wealthy clientele. Um, basically, when the royal family left Ostend, they moved up the coast and they took the entourage with them. And it has stayed, it has stayed that way. Does that make Kanaka a pleasant place to walk around or does it make it somewhere that feels, you're, you feel out of place and that you, you know, it makes you a bit sick in your stomach? Um, you're talking to me um, or are you talking in you general? Can, because to me, I did not, I, yeah, Kanaka, I've been there. Kanaka is actually one of the few places on the coast I've been to before. Um, and it is very chi-chi. It's very, yeah. If you have any pretensions towards being a class warrior, then it's not the place where you want to go. So, but if I want to take my bourgeoisie French and my Gucci handbags, that's, that's where I show up on the coast. That's I probably, probably where you find the tram, them. And, but. And, 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 then, and then what you do is you put your jumper over your shoulder, you tie it in a, in a little knot, you put your boat shoes on and your Bermuda shorts, and you go out and you sip Aperol spritzes in the overpriced bars of a promenade. So apart from the Aperol spritzes though, <laughs> is there anything, is there anything interesting to drink or eat? There is absolutely. I mean, we're obviously caricaturing here. Um, because there is like there is a lot of very nice restaurants in Kanaka. And there's a and because you have this critical mass of of wealthy people, there is a very um active food community there. Artisanal producers, if you're talking bakers, chocolatiers, uh, ice cream, whatever. You know, the kind of boutique uh food food businesses. Um, and there's a lot of good bars too. And something that kind of brought those two together, which is why I was interested to go to Kanaka and why I made the, the effort to get out of my hotel and not sit there feeling sorry for myself, was that I was meeting somebody who was working on a project who was bringing those two tracks together while also trying to bring in some of that uh, coastal terroir that we talked about when we talked about it with uh, Ian at uh, Mondieu. So I'm uh, Jeroen, the food archaeologist, and I tell the story of the daily survival of our ancestors between brackets, because this hour is uh, not that defined uh, then, but now also. Uh, mm. And how they, um, they used foods 
to survive in their daily living. Okay. Professionally, he's known as the food archaeologue, which in English is the food archaeologist. Um, but his parents christened him Jeroen van Varenberg. And Jeroen is an archaeologist by trade, uh, by profession. Uh, he used to work as an archaeological consultant for uh, communes, and now he works uh, full-time as a sort of food historian and consultant. And the way he describes it, his job is putting the medieval onto your plate. And a particular part of that work that he's doing is a project that he's working on in Knocka with the Knocka Tourism Board to take another look and give another dimension to Knocka's food traditions. Um, and I wanted to talk to him about that. Uh, and a very particular drink that had come out of this project, which he had lured me to a cocktail bar called The Pharmacy in Knocka. So did did he serve you up a medieval med, medieval world in a glass? Well, he tried. <laughs> he tried. But uh, unfortunately, um, by the time we got to the bar, uh, they didn't have what he was looking for. So Jeroen's uh, project is something called the Verdwena Zwinhavens. And what the Verdwena Zwinhavens is, is basically an effort by Jeroen and Knocker to dive back into the regions, that part of the coast's history, um, way back, we're talking the 12th, 13th, 14th century, when uh, Knocker was just one village, one coastal village of many, which made up a network of harbours, which was basically the entry point of a lot of trade to Flanders at that time. We talk about trade, we mean, you know, trade like things from Scandinavia, from the Mediterranean, from from the Far East, and they would come into the Zwinhavens, of which Kanaka was one, and then they would be distributed to the rest of the country. And what that meant was that the food culture in Kanaka and the surrounding area of the Zwin, which is a, a nature reserve outside of the town, um, was incredibly rich and so varied. So it's kind of like, a, you know, a, um, the Antwerp of the medieval times. You know, Antwerp's point. Yeah, so it... Yeah, so it was there before Antwerp, and then, uh, such is the way of these things, the harbour silted up, trade went elsewhere, uh, to Antwerp, in fact. Um, so what you would have seen at that time was, you know, exotic spices, fruits, um, all of these coming through, things like cinnamon, uh, cod from the north, uh, tropical fruits from the east, citrus fruits from the Mediterranean, all coming together in a sort of weird mix with that existing coastal and polder terroir to produce a, a really interesting mix of foods. And what Jeroen is doing with that project was getting food producers that we talked about involved, taking those produce and doing something interesting with them in Kanaka and to try and, yeah, bring the history back to life in a way. And one of those things that he was doing was a cocktail. So he had worked with a local cocktail bar. And I said, oh, that's very interesting, Irun. We should go and try it. And it was like, and then he said, yeah, okay, well, we'll meet at the pharmacy, which is, which at that point was in an old uh, antiques shop. It's since moved locations. And he said, okay, well, we've done this cocktail. It's got bread in it. I said, okay. It's got vodka or gin in it. And I said, okay. And he said, it's got fish in it. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> and that wasn't just because I'm, I'm trying to be... <laughs> It wasn't just because I'm trying to be a vegetarian, um, but the thought of having, um, you know, uh, having, what fish is it? Having mackerel, having mackerel in a cocktail, which is why he told me it was when he finally spilled the beans just 
It just did not. It did not float my boat. But that's is exactly what he was trying to trying to do, trying to demonstrate was they used to have so many of these different foods in that area. And was he convincing you know, in his belief that the cocktail was delicious, or did you see? He through was. Him? Well, no, he was very convincing, and I tend to be open-minded, especially when it comes to cocktails. Maybe not if he had if he had offered me a like a beer. Like a mackerel beer, I would have said, mm, uh, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to have a hard time confusing, uh, convincing me. But no, he was very convincing. Unfortunately, when we got there, they were all out of mackerel. So it's for another time or it's consigned to, yeah, a different list that never gets. Well, I trust his description of the, of the mackerel as, uh, as what it would have tasted had I tried it. You have full faith in him as a food archaeologue. Exactly. The pharmacy is one of the participants in the Verdwenen Zwinhavens project. Uh, Medieval Times on Your Plate is the yeah. uh, subtitle. Um, yes. And it's one of the, um, let's say, the more creative... Uh, Uses of archaeology. Yeah, but the pharmacy is known for their creativity. Uh, so. Uh, we have 20 participants, starting from uh, farmers who have a dairy farm, uh, uh, bakeries, uh, things like that. But we also wanted the um, more creative uh, um, people in the region to participate mm. because they uh, can trigger the other ones to come out of their comfort zone. Yeah. And that's what happened. Yeah. We hoped that the pharmacy would make something very special and they made one, uh, a cocktail uh, based on an extract of mackerel mm -hmm. combined with an extra extract of bread um, okay. mixed into a cocktail. Right. It was very interesting moment in time then. Uh, Bruges and the Zwin regions was sort of um, a meeting point of all different cultures, tastes, um, tastes from the Mediterranean, tastes from Scandinavia, tastes from England, uh, yeah. all combined with the local terroir of uh, the polders. Uh, um, and that was a sort of a melting pot, literally, of all different tastes that were combined yeah. in all new dishes. It's to make new things with it and to reconnect with it and to give it a future and to especially um, combine it with things like sustainability uh, and stuff like that. Um, You, in the name of that project, Zwin Havens, the Zwin um, Harbors, I guess, um, you, you know, you referenced the Zwin, I think, which people may not also know, because um, the Zwin, for a large part, is, is, is essentially a nature reserve or a nature park, which has particularly a lot of uh, bird life 
Um, did you get a chance to visit that? Is that kind of in the same area as the end of the tram line? Yeah, so the Zwin is a sort of estuarial marshland, which goes almost from the edge of Knocka right away through to the Dutch border and over the border. The border actually straddles the Zwin and they share responsibility for that with the Netherlands next door. Um, and it's actually the, uh, the quietest part, the quietest place in Belgium. The Zwin? Because, yeah. because so it's, of... Because it's so far away from No everything. traffic, less no residential... Traffic, no, no roads, um, there's bikes, okay, but there are parts of the place where you can't get in. And as you said, it's a, it's a, it's a massive nature reserve now. And it's really interesting. And I did, once, once, um, once we'd finished with Yeroen, Yeroen gave me a couple of tips as well as to how to navigate, where to go. A couple of the food producers that he was working with were on, were on the edge of this wind. So I got my bike uh, from the train station and I... Didn't stick around Knocker. I mean, I've been there and I'll probably go there again. Got on my bike and cycled out to see if I could find the Zwin, to see if I could um, find some of the food producers, some of the things that have been produced because I didn't get my macro cocktail. <laughs> and also just to... I hadn't really seen much wilderness. Yeah. Um, one thing that's nice about the tram is that in parts of the journey along the coast, you do go through some sand dunes but you're never far away from traffic. There's always a road next to you. And yeah, the tram itself is a noisy beast, busy yeah. beast. Exactly. Um, so it was, I wanted to find some, some, some quiet, like I said, some, some wilderness, some nature, um, which is not something that the coast offers in abundance. Like we said at the start, Belgian Coast doesn't really get a lot of uh, mention when it comes to people in the beer world or beer enthusiasts who are planning a trip to Belgium. I mean, people, you know, they may pop out to the West Hook, they may go to Bruges, they may go to Ghent. Uh, they'll definitely spend some time in Brussels. Would you now, having spent a few days there drinking and eating, would you recommend people to make their way to the coast? Absolutely. Um, if only to just get a completely different view of what flanders is like because it is not like anywhere else like it is as far away from the medieval cobble streets of bruges as, as is possible and for some people that won't be that won't be interesting but you know it is some of it is like the zwin is beautiful ostend has a charm of itself that you don't get anywhere else um places like at bottleture places like brasserie du parc um, there's history there there's there's art there's museums and with the tram, you're never very, you know, okay. And I, I still, I still hang on to this that it's not really a coast that, as as a coast, that I would like to retire on. I still see myself retiring in like a small cottage on the Irish Atlantic, or like the, you know, in a little fishing village outside of Barcelona or something like that. Um, but there is, there is something there. Um, and you're never, with the tram, you're never too far away from a little bit of wilderness. You know, if it's the Zwin or if it's the dunes outside of the Han, or even, even, you know, that little bit of, that little bit of beach between the tram starting at Adinkerke and the Pana to the Belgian, uh, to, 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 the, to the border with, with France. 
there's very little there it's i mean because once you get once you stop at uh depana and you've got plopsa land that's where everybody gets off they don't go any further south because there's nothing of interest there you can have a whole beach yourself now you do have to be careful because i know there are some nudist beaches there so you want to just watch out for that but um you know there is there is you can escape and i think probably that's something that i didn't necessarily really realize until i took the, the journey on the tram There's a new day that will come again tomorrow There's a new day to wash away the pain There's a new day to take away your sorrow And the old ways get washed out by the that was kind of the end of your trip um well you know before heading back to brussels did you have any uh did you have a chance to reflect on kind of the weird and like wet and stressful trip that you'd just been on for the previous two or three days well i had dried out at this point so it was the next morning when i i came so i went back to my hotel and then in the morning i i, I did the last leg of the journey i got the tram all the way to knocka terminus walked around to the little train station there picked up my bike and the sun was out and it was as if all of the, the clouds had been burned away it was as if i'd entered a parallel reality for the you know just look compared to what the weather had like been like the previous day and you know sometimes there's nothing better than just getting on your bike and cycling away from town you know you can cycle away from everything i was in a pair of shorts i was living my best <laughs> life i had my breakfast um, and it is actually really nice. Like to cycle around the Zwin, it's quiet. You know, you're always going to pass one or two cyclists. Um, and then you go, you kind of, you're inland, you're outland. The the sea is there, but it's not there. You know, you're, you can hear the seagulls, but you can also hear some, some field birds. There are cows, there are horses. There's the smell of shite from the farms and also the smell of sea in the air so you you know what it reminded me of most particularly was that journey that we would used to take when we were kids we okay we do it by car but you get in the car 
drive out of town, you drive through the fields, and you can start to smell the sea before you before you get there. And for the first time, actually, it really did. I was like, oh, this is, it's it sparked is, that little is, emotional memory, maybe. This is the coastline. This is the coastline, or a, a sort of a, a simulation, an approximation of the coastline that I remember. You know, the, the, the blue skies, the green fields, the sea air. And then obviously I had an ice cream and I sat down and I told them. for braving the elements and throwing himself into this assignment and to Cliff Lucas for taking the tram with his camera and shooting amazing photos to accompany Owen's story now published over on belgiansmack.com thanks again to Visit Flanders for their support to Epidemic for music and sound effects and to Lucky Dart for animations and once more thanks to you for listening to this podcast and for supporting us by subscribing and sharing with your friends My name is Brandon Kearney. This has been the Belgian Smack Podcast. Until the next time, love what you do 